morning and welcome to Rising. Emily, our Nashville correspondent, <laughs> glad you could be here. Well, so, <laughs> so what, what are you doing in Nashville? I'm at a work retreat. Uh, Ryan, I learned from you that it's okay to do this it's, remotely. It's that we, ha we have totally the technology. <laughs> um, you're going without the glasses today, Ryan. Yes, because we're not doing any teleprompter, really. And so I oh. really need them for the teleprompter. You're kind of fuzzy on the screen, but that's fine. I, I, I know you're there. I mean, yes, I saw you, you saw that I did uh, two shows remote with COVID from home. And you're like, wait a minute. So I could just, <laughs> I can just travel the world. <laughs> Uh, you could be anyone. Well, yeah. now, the, now the audience knows, by the way, that if you see Ryan wearing glasses, he's being told what to say. <laughs> That's right. It's just coming. It's just coming right in here. But we, so we wanted to we wanted to start the show today. Later, we're going to talk about some big news on the on one one of my hobby horses, the lab leak. Jeffrey Sachs is out with a a, a very big new paper uh, that uh, that that points to a lot of new evidence. Uh, that the origin may indeed have been the lab in Wuhan. But first, we wanted to talk about this, uh, this case out of the Fifth Circuit that has gotten almost no coverage in the media this week compared to the ramifications that it would have for the structure of our government, of our society, and even the global government. And so this is a case. It's called Patriots 28, which is, which is perfect. Patriots 28 versus, versus SEC. So uh, the details of the case don't really matter. But essentially... Patriots 28 was accused of securities fraud, taking people's money, losing it, uh, lying to them. The SEC investigated them. SEC concluded that they had, in fact, done these things, enforced SEC law against them, on and on. You know, we do this all the time. You, you, you break securities law, SEC investigates you, they, they catch you. Uh, and you, you pay a fine or what, you, know, you, you, you suffer other, other consequences, you lose your license, etc. They sued, went to the, the Fifth Circuit and said, you know what, the SEC actually is unconstitutional. Like that's basically their argument, that there, are, you know, there is a Seventh Amendment right to a jury trial. We did not get a jury trial, therefore this was unfair. And basically the, it is unconstitutional for the SEC itself to enforce uh, securities law. So what... It, so this has a history. You know, this did not come from nowhere. So where, where do you, where do you, can you tell, tell me a little bit about the kind of the rights idea around the administrative state here? I'm curious what you think of this and how serious you think this, it's only a two to one ruling. And so it'll still have to go to the entire Fifth Circuit. But I'm curious how surprised you are to see this kind of coming to fruition. Yeah, it is interesting because there's very much um, a longstanding belief. I mean, so over the what the last hundred years, a little bit more than the last hundred years, as the country grew really quickly and industrialized, um, there was a lot of centralization of federal power and a lot of centralization of power in Washington D.C. And in some ways, you can understand why, especially even I mean, even from the the rights perspective, you can understand why it was sort of necessary to have um, at least a semblance of control when you have this vast country um, and things moving really quickly because of new technologies. And so, but there has always been this idea that there's no constitutional mandate, really, no legitimate constitutional mandate for the administrative, the administrative state, for a lot of the executive branch. Um, and, you know, I, I, case to case, I think there's a good argument for that. But in this particular case, um, I, I don't know that the ramifications of this, clearly they 
are this is hugely consequential consequential but i also think uh i i believe that the administrative state will will fight back in ways that uh, won't actually carve out its power at all but that's why this case is interesting because it goes directly to whether that mandate for places not just like the sec mm-hmm. but for all of these massive agencies is legitimate um and i think we always just kind of breezed past that. It just sort of became our norm and it came baked into the structure of our government. Um, And a case like this is really interesting because it makes you pause and say, what was this actually built on? Um, And so I think I I was really, when, when we saw it, I was like, when you saw it, Ryan, I was glad we were going to talk about it because you're right that like the the implications are huge, whether they stick, I think is less likely. My, yeah, my own guess is that this one, this particular one will, will not stick. But the way that these unfold is that they off, it often takes years. You know, you, they, you, they kind of chip away at these precedents. You know, look at Casey and, and Roe. You know, it's you know, another 20 years, 25 years between, between those. And so the, the fact that they found two judges on, this, on the circuit court who were willing to say this to me was uh, was. St- Stunning, but also maybe predictable, given how much energy is behind this. There is behind this kind of assault on the administrative state. So I was I was reading up on the history of this last night. It goes back to OSHA. Like the first case was OSHA. Yeah. So Congress created OSHA and said, you know, we, we want workplace safety rules to be in place. And Congress said, and we empower OSHA to do this. Like we don't we don't want every single uh, case of like some type of violation that an OSHA inspector finds to have to come before a jury trial. That would just completely break the system. And, if, and like you said, if, if you want to actually execute laws in this big industrializing country, you're going to have to delegate some of that power. Now, if people want to eventually appeal to the courts, you know, they're entitled to do that. But they're going to go, you know, they ha- first they have to go through this administrative process. Uh, but you're right. It would, it would apply to not just the SEC. It would be OSHA. It would be the EPA. Uh, mm-hmm. Arguably, you know, FTC, FCC, basically the entire administrative structure that in, that enforces the laws that Congress passes in a public way, not just not the criminal laws like murder and burglary and things like that. Uh, the the what's what's interesting about this, and this is where I'm curious from the rights perspective. So, from, from you know, a lot of people on the left, and we've talked about this before, see the U.S not necessarily as the most benign force around the U.S., the, the, you know, the, the empire. Have we that, talked you know, about this? We, we, we've talked about this a little bit. <laughs> that the, but we have two things. The U.S. empire has two things going for it. Uh, the military, the obvious one, uh, and, the, and our securities markets, our capital markets. They're not completely free of corruption, but it's relative. They are the most trusted capital markets in the entire world. Like I said, it doesn't mean they're perfect, but everybody else's are worse. And so all of the kind of global capital that is looking for a safe place, and by safe, you might lose your investment, but you're, very, you're le- much less likely to get your money stolen by fraudsters right. in US capital markets. And so when a company like this Patriots 28 basically just takes money, allegedly, according to the SEC, then we have an enforcement mechanism. That's why people aren't pouring money into, say, Chinese markets, or the, like there's a Riyadh, stock market. But people don't trust that if they put it in there, they won't just wind up in a Ritz-Carlton, uh, you know, getting rounded up by MBS and, and just having it expropriated. And so if you no longer have an administrative state that is able to enforce 
securities laws. That might be this kind of utopian, you know, Lochner paradise that some of the libertarian right wants to see happen, but it also then fundamentally undermines American power in a global perspective. And so where does the, where does the right come down on that? Because they don't necessarily want to be the people that kind of un, you know, pulled on the threads that unraveled the whole thing, do they? Right. I think that's actually you're, you're getting at what is this tension and has been a tension for years between the libertarian wing of the Republican Party and the conservative movement. Um, and it's it's actually gets to we built these mechanisms as we industrialized and grew to be federal um, and to be executive branch powers. And so if you roll that back, um, you don't have any like there's the recourse is not built in because we've defaulted to these federal mechanisms. And so while there is, as you say, Ryan, this maybe utopian um, paradise vision of what the country could be, uh, it simply is not. And there's no sort of prudent or moral way to roll these powers back although they do occasionally create serious problems. And that was one of the interesting things um, the judges wrote here. And they wrote, you know, not about the crime sort of took the back burner in this uh, writing. What they were talking about was the power. Um, and OSHA, if you remember the vaccine mandate, uh, the, the federal Biden's federal vaccine mandate, he cited a very obscure uh, it, it, that was based on a very obscure thing in the, the original OSHA Act. Um, a, a very obscure power, um, emergency power in the OSHA Act. And it was federal and a lot of people kind of blanched at that. And I do think it's true. There are so many things buried in these layers and layers and layers of federal, vast federal powers that overreach. And then we have courts that step in um, to hopefully be the sort of bulwark uh, for civil liberties. It doesn't always happen, but this has created problems and it has created constitutional tensions. And I I do think that's what they were hitting on. But the moral question is very different than the legal practical one. You cannot roll back the country to be the, the libertarian utopia that some uh, folks might want us to be. <laughs> yeah, no, and you're, you're right. When they, when they used OSHA to do the vaccine mandate, I was, that, that was starting to make me nervous. I'm like, oh, this is, this is kind of really reaching. And this will also then be the thing that, people will, that the people who've been trying to undo OSHA will use to undo all of the the, the broader regulations. But yeah, the, the, and the, the libertarian argument, I think, just doesn't, doesn't fly here, particularly in the securities markets, because all a group like Patriots 28 has to do is make a whole bunch of money once. Like the, the, mm -hmm. argu the argument is that, well, if you know, it will sell, the free market will self-correct because if somebody steals your money, then that company's not going to do well because people right. aren't going to want to give that company more money in the future. It's like, yeah, well, they don't necessarily need to. They're just going to walk, because now they have all your money, and they walk away with it. <laughs> and they're just going to create a new company. They can just create, if they want to keep doing it, they can just create a new company name and steal somebody else's money. Uh, that, and so that, that doesn't quite work. You need somebody in there being like, no, here are the rules. You can't, just, you can't claim to be investing somebody's money and actually just be taking it. And if you do that, we're going to enforce that. Uh, but I don't know. Any any final thoughts on where this is on where this is headed? Well, yeah, I think you you raise a really good point about uh, the the stability of our markets and the American sort of system and the way that that can be undermined in sort of an unhelpful path for the United States. And and that's why I think you know not just the administrative state, but pretty much every 
mechanism would fight back on this question. And I don't think that necessarily means um, you, this is the, the perfect constitutional system, um, because I think clearly there are some tensions. But that said, um, I, I don't know. I, like, I think going forward, this is the the government is now so firmly established on this you know, 100 plus years of precedent and this foundation, we're used to it. It's basically the source of, it's like the invisible hand of stability. Um, and if you got rid of it and rolled it back, you know, for all of its excesses, we still have to rely on the courts to protect our civil liberties. I don't know, Ryan, if you think that there's um, a, a real serious threat from this ruling, um, or if you think it just sort of ends up, you know, going by the way, going by the wayside. I think it's a pretty serious threat. I don't, I don't think that it will result in the entire demolition of the administrative state top to bottom. But I, but I do think they're, they're looking for ways to severely narrow what the administrative state is capable of. Could be, and this is, this is such a radical and blunt attempt that it, I think it's just too much. And reading the dissents yes. is, is interesting because it's one of these dissents where it's like, it's not arguing philosophically and it's not arguing theoretically with the majority opinion. They're just like, this is wrong. You guys misread. Like it, it, it felt like a kind of professor correcting the paper yes. of a law student who's like, no, actually, here, here are your mistakes here. Uh, but there are so many. It, it, it also doesn't matter. Like your reasoning and you know, whether or not you're hewing accurately to precedent matters less than how many votes you have. That, and that's what yeah. I th we've, we've had this emphasis on the qualifications of Supreme Court justices. They've got to be highly qualified. It's like, really? An unqualified <laughs> yes vote and, an un and a qualified yes vote are the same. Like whether, <laughs> whether you're an informed voter or an uninformed voter, like you're, it, it's, if it's five to four, it's five to four, whatever your reasoning is. Uh, so I, I don't know. But that's... Like it, you know. I, but that's premised on the idea that we can predict how um, that justices will vote in a certain direction, which in and of itself, I think, is pre premised on something a little uh, troubling patterns, I guess, in, in our um, evolution as a country. Yeah. But the right, I mean, like all of this Department of Education stuff, like I think in an ideal world, a federal Department of Education either doesn't exist or is so tiny, but there's no way you can do that. You can't roll these things back at this point. But I do think the Republican appetite, to your point, Ryan, like you need, if there's a political appetite, these rulings like this become much more potent. And I do think that's, that's absolutely growing. Um, and for some good reasons, but whether or not it's practical, I think is a totally different question. Yeah, and they'll probably want to be careful what they wish for. We'll see. <laughs> That's but, true. Uh, anyway, looking forward to what's on your radar up next. Ryan, what's on your radar? Well, Sean Patrick Maloney this week pulled off what might be the most brazenly selfish district hop in American political history. Now, to win that coveted medal of opportunism is a truly spectacular achievement, given that Maloney is operating in an industry, politics, that is populated almost exclusively by some of the most craven, attention-seeking people in our society. Now, the number of different ways that Maloney's move has shocked even the most cynical observers of politics is itself shocking. So if you don't follow internal Democratic politics, here's what you missed. So a judge recently threw out the congressional map drawn by Democrats in the state of New York and drew a new one with more Republican seats. Maloney represents a district in New York that was slightly redrawn, but still leans Democratic. About three quarters of the 18th district is already represented by Maloney. It's essentially his old district, 
though his house was drawn into the 17th district. Now, there's no law in New York that you have to live in the district you represent, and Maloney living nearby would be fine, especially since he's well-known there and he's popular. But instead of running for his own seat, he announced immediately that he'd be running in the 17th district, most of which is currently represented by freshman Mondaire Jones and is a bit bluer than the 16th. So it's a bit bluer than the 18th, so it's safer. Now, so let's start to count the ways that this is already an unbelievably selfish move. Start with the startling fact that Maloney ran for and won the position of Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee chairman. So his entire job is to make sure that Democrats hold their narrow House majority where the Biden legislative agenda is completely dead. Normally, the job of the DCCC chair is to recruit the right candidates for the right districts and convince people to run in places where winning isn't a sure thing. Maloney is exactly the type of candidate a DCCC chair would try to recruit to run in the 18th district, and Maloney couldn't even convince Maloney to run there. Now, if Maloney, the DCCC chair, is running scared from a district that leans blue, what message does that send to members serving in toss-up districts or ones that lean slightly red? Now, Maloney, however, doesn't want to primary Mondaire Jones. He wants Jones to step aside for him. When Jones's staffer sent the Maloney staffer a pissy text message, the Maloney staffer shot back, don't you guys live in the 16th district? And yes, Jones technically now lives in the new 16th. That might change when the new district lines come out this afternoon, but he represents most of the 17th district. The 17th is his real district, and Maloney knows that. So Democrats barely have any room for error, so every seat matters, unless he's just assuming that they're going to lose 30, so nothing matters. Now, if Maloney gets his wish and Jones runs in the 16th district, that would pit him against Jamal Bowman. Bowman, a member of the extended squad, put out a statement Thursday saying he's running in his seat no matter what. He also didn't mince words, saying, quote, let's also be clear about this. Two black men who worked hard to represent their communities, who fight hard for their constituents in Congress and advocate for, the, for dire needs in our communities, should not be pitted against each other, all because Congressman Sean Patrick Maloney wants to have a slightly easier district for himself. The Democratic Party should not tolerate or condone or condone those who try to dismantle and tear down black power in Congress. I'm proud that many of my Democratic colleagues have stood up and made clear that this is wrong, and I encourage more to do the same. The solution is simple. Congressman Maloney should run in his own district. I'll be running in mine, unquote. Now, what's interesting is that Representative Richie Torres has been perhaps the most outspoken on this issue. What makes it interesting coming from him is that Torres has been in an open war with the New York left for several years now. He's also one of the closest allies of the pro-Israel lobby in the caucus, and that lobby hates Jamal Bowman more than anybody else for the crime of unseating Elliot Engel in 2020. They'd no doubt love to see Mondaire Jones pushed into Bowman's district and knock him out of Congress. Now, although Torres here is a bit biased because he doesn't actually want Bowman jumping from the 16th into the 15th district, which is his. So Maloney's allies, meanwhile, they have suggested to reporters that Mondaire Jones is actually more, quote, ideologically suited to a different district. What they mean by that is pretty clear, and Torres ripped the mask off, it, off of it, saying, quote, the thinly veiled racism here is profoundly disappointing. A black man is ideologically ill-suited to represent a Westchester County district that he represents presently and won decisively in 2020? Outrageous. Yeah, so not only is it racist, it's just objectively not true. 
Jones ran in a very competitive primary in 2020, and he won the primary in a landslide. Then in the general election, he outperformed Joe Biden there. On what basis is he not suited for the district? He grew up there, raised by a single mom who cleaned houses in the district, and now those people are represented by her son in Congress. And you know what? They love it. Biden carried the district by 20 points, but Jones carried it by 24 points. That makes him more in step with the district than Joe Biden. Now, here's another way that Maloney's move hurts the party. To beat somebody as popular as Jones on his own home turf, Maloney will need an insane amount of money. That's the only way most centrist candidates are able to knock out progressives, by massively outspending them and running ads tearing them down or having outside super PACs doing that. Any money spelt... Any money that's spent helping Maloney beat Jones is money not being spent helping a vulnerable Democrat beat a Republican. And running a campaign against Jones will be extremely time-consuming for Maloney when his actual job is to be traveling the country raising money for other Democrats. So AOC, meanwhile, has called for Maloney to step down, mocking him for not being able to, quote, take his redistricting on the chin. Speaker Pelosi was asked Thursday if she was concerned this could hurt the party, and she waved it off. They'll find out what district that is on Friday when the uh, announcements made. The public period of comment would end yesterday. Friday they'll make an announcement. That's what they And this doesn't affect the party at larger as you're no, trying to no, hold no, it up. No, no, no. Well, why, okay. why not, though? You said, I can understand because I'm getting involved in New York. It, just, it's, 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 it doesn't. We have a great chairman of the DCCC. He's a master of the three M's. The mobilization on the ground to get out the vote, the messaging that, that is non-menacing, that fuels uh, the get out the vote, and the money, the resources needed to do that. Uh, he so how can she be so blasé about this? It is on its face crazy to have the DCCC chair costing seats and soaking up all his time attacking other Democrats. So why does she not think that's nuts? So her nonchalance only makes sense if she and Maloney think that they can bully Mondaire Jones into leaving his district and instead challenging Bowman. And according to sources familiar with Jones's campaign strategy, he's been preparing for the possibility of a primary challenge with Bowman for the last year. And he has regularly told donors that he needed to build up a war chest for that possibility. He didn't say he wanted it to happen, but he told people it might happen and he needed to be ready. But if it happens now, it won't be because he's forced into it. It'll be because he chooses it. The choice is a brutal one, and it's the most naked deal-with-the-devil scenario I've ever seen in politics. The party establishment, in the form of the DCCC chair, is offering him this. If you hand over your district to Sean Patrick Maloney and go off and execute your friend, you will have proven your loyalty, and you'll be a member in good standing in our society. You will hold that seat as long as you want, as long as nobody primaries you from the left, of course. And if they do, we'll have endless money to try to protect you. The only price is that you'll know for the rest of your career that it was built on that decision in that moment. The whole thing feels like some sick, sadistic initiation into a club that nobody with any moral character should want to be a part of. So I asked Jones about all of this last night, and he told me, quote, we don't even have a final map. Everyone needs to chill. The final map comes out later today. And so we'll, you know, we'll find out. Maybe they, the judge moves everybody back into their districts. Maybe Sean Patrick Maloney uh, gets enough criticism from his colleagues that he backs off and then Mondaire Jones stays in his own district. 
But right now, it's looking like there could be a Jones-Bowman primary as a result of Maloney's move here. You ever seen anything like this on, on the Republican side? I don't think I've ever seen anything like this, period. Um, it's so, and it's not to say it's out of character for the sort of Nancy Pelosi Democratic establishment. It's not at all. I mean, running it like the, the mob, basically, you have to like, it's, it's, it's insane. Um, but it's also really interesting because of the district and the nature of the district in that it's, it's almost, I, I'm more tempted to say that this is classist than it is racist, right? That like these, this ideology is just it is simply not suited for Westchester County. Like this is this is it, it, nobody could possibly um, you know want this uh, anti-establishment, um, anti-capitalist ideology in, in Westchester. And it's it's interesting because as you say, he outperformed Joe Biden. And mm -hmm. this to me gets to a very a very central problem with the Democratic Party is that the party establishment does not understand its own base. It doesn't understand its own voters and it doesn't even understand the country more broadly. They don't understand why people um, can run on these anti-establishment platforms and do well in places that they might not expect, Westchester yeah. County, wherever it is. Um, and these ridiculous loyalty tests are, I mean, I don't know, I, I kind of, I, I actually think this is such a bad look. It is so like Shakespearean that I wouldn't yeah. be surprised if um, everybody does kind of chill uh yeah. for your conversation there and maloney backs off because this this looks really bad yeah and we, and we we spend a lot of time or I, I, at least i spend a lot of time harping on the kind of fecklessness and incompetence of the the democratic party establishment but then we're reminded in moments like this that they're not feckless they're not incompetent they have mm -hmm. enormous power they have immense political skills it's just that they only deploy those talents against the left. That's what they're enthusiastic about. When it comes to taking on Republicans, eh, all of a sudden they become utterly incompetent. Well, and it's all about power. And this is a good example. It's all about power, not about um, like actually doing anything. It's in this case, it is clearly just about the power of Sean Patrick Maloney um, and, and not in the service of any particular cause other than Democratic Party power or the, the establishment's party power. And Ryan, I'm kind of curious if you think the real motivation here was to pit um, to to give Maloney an easier district or to pit Jones and Bowman against each other. What, do you think there was like any particular thing that took priority? I, th I think it's both, but I think the top priority is is revenge against Bowman. Yeah, yeah that's what I think yeah. it sounds like. Um, and it, yeah, so it, it might result in an easier district for Maloney, but like it's also just nakedly uh, just a power grab against the anti-establishment wing of the Democratic Party. And again, this is not like entirely surprising. Um, you know, this goes back years, especially for Nancy Pelosi. And I feel like there are a lot of leaders of the Democratic establishment that have been uh, sort of raised in her, her image. Um, and Sean Patrick Maloney seems to be one of them. Yeah, and we'll get, we'll get the maps uh, later today. And Jones really has a kind of life-changing decision in front of him. We'll wait to see what he decides. Unbelievable. Looking forward to your radar up next. So, Emily, what's on your radar? Well, the legal battle between Johnny Depp and Amber Heard is hard to follow. And admittedly, I'm not swamped in the granular details like so many people are. But the case centers around a Washington Post op-ed written by Heard back in 2018. 
except it wasn't written by her. Her name is on the byline, but she didn't write the op-ed. The ACLU did. Now, ghostwriting is hardly uncommon, but Heard's op-ed came into existence under very dubious circumstances. Depp is suing over one line. Quote, two years ago, I became a public figure representing domestic abuse, and I felt the full force of our culture's wrath for women who speak out, it reads. Now, Heard is countersuing on the basis that Depp's lawyer referred to her allegations as a hoax. So that's what's happening in this court case. That's what's going on in Virginia right now. Documents obtained by Depp's legal team throw open the hood of our media machine. Emails show that Heard agreed to donate $3.5 million to the ACLU in exchange for a title of the ambassador and an ambassador for gender justice. She literally bought credentials from an elite institution. Now, she also didn't pay yet at least, but that's another story. The ACLU wrote Heard's op-ed and pitched it to the Washington Post as part of a public public relations campaign. Already, we have a problem right there. The ACLU is siding with Heard. The ACLU, not the Women's March, or now, the ACLU. Why this institution that exists to protect civil liberties felt the need to put their thumb on the scale for Heard against Depp without any semblance of due process is a serious question. Now, the Washington Post then took the op-ed from the ACLU and published it with this line intact. That line is a bombshell. It's only 26 words, but it's a bombshell. With those 26 words, Heard accused another human being of a heinous crime in one of the biggest newspapers in the world, period, in the Washington Post letter. There was no comment from Depp, even as a footnote. The ACLU lent this accusation their credibility, and then the Post did too. We still don't even know if it's true. But in the heat of the Trump era, there was no time or need for the usual standards. While papers like the New York Times and the Washington Post were doing some serious shoe leather work, whether it was on Harvey Weinstein or others, the same outlets were undermining that work and the credibility by undermining their credibility as news institutions. And in the process, they were undermining our cultural standards while they sought to improve them. So if you go back and look at the full op-ed from December of 2018, the ACLU was sure to use Heard's bombshell accusation as a way to lobby against part of Betsy DeVos's then forthcoming Title IX reforms. Of course, those are being uh, reformed again now under the Biden administration, as we've discussed here, and in ways that deserve serious attention. The ACLU actually explicitly pitched the piece in the context of Trump to Heard's publicist. These emails are incredible. Quote, I'd like your and Amber's thoughts on doing an op-ed in which she discusses the ways in which survivors of gender-based violence have been made less safe under the Trump administration and how people can take action, the staffer wrote to Heard's publicist. It's partisan right there. Now, it's hard to remember exactly how frenzied those months of the Me Too movement were. It was an eruption. This story, then, is kind of a disturbing case study in how quickly our norms crumble when social tensions peak. The institutions who boast about being our great bulwarks, who play with their power so freely, they crumble first. They facilitate these incremental declines 
And then they lash out when people don't trust them or don't take them seriously enough. This is a vicious cycle. They trade their credibility for clicks and partisanship, then marvel at the wreckage of our culture and ask for more power over the rest of us. That's what the cycle looks like. We need a robust ACLU precisely to defend due process rights and our rights when it's hardest because the accused person is least sympathetic at any given moment. We need a robust fourth estate for the same reason. That's not what we have. We have a bunch of partisan backslappers adrift from a coherent and virtuous moral foundation. It's a complete joke. Ryan, I don't think we need to weigh in in this case um, or, or adjudicate the guilt of either Heard or Depp or whether this defamation suit, there's the actual malice standard, which is kind of an interesting question in and of itself, um, is legitimate. We don't even need to do that. But if you look at these ACLU, it's, it's a separate question. It's an important question, but it's a separate question. If you look at these emails the ACLU sent to Heard's publicist and the Washington Post, it's a great glimpse into how these institutions function um, and, and how they're sort of willing to give people like Amber Heard these ambassador for gender justice titles um, because she pledges three and a half million dollars, which again, she hasn't paid yet, but it's, it's such a, it's, you're just buying your credibility without really any justification for it. I mean, it, it is a window into institutional drift and how the need to co constantly be fundraising can can distort or can warp, you know, the way, you know, the, the original mission that an organization set out to do. I, I do want to defend Amber Heard for one second here, though, and, and apparently I, uh, that's not a very popular thing to do. But so in, in this in this Washington Post op-ed, she wrote uh, two well, years ago. Well, she didn't write it. What the ACLU wrote. Uh, two years ago, I became a public figure representing domestic abuse, and I felt the full force of our culture's wrath for women who speak out. So she became a public figure representing domestic abuse because a, an English tabloid referred to Johnny Depp as a wife beater. Uh, he then sued the tabloid. The defamation laws in, uh, in Britain are extre extremely loose. Like you can win defamation suits quite easily. Yet, despite that, a uh, judge in that case took a look at a bunch of different instances that, uh, that were presented to the court and, and found a, something like a dozen of them to be credible instances and said, you know what, uh, your defamation suit is thrown out. Like the, the, the newspaper was justified in using the phrase wife beater to describe you. And that became this giant issue. And so for her to say that she became a public figure representing domestic abuse was completely true because that was a giant scandal around domestic abuse and she was at the at the center of it and this and this judge said look this is this was a fair description here uh so just wanted, wanted to put that and also uh, let, let me quibble with the point on trump too it's not just random partisanship the guy was accused by what more than a dozen women quite credibly uh right. of of assault of, of various of not just harassment but some uh, sexual assault and then if you remember like just what two weeks before the election that tape emerged of him of him doing his quote unquote locker room talk, which is what he what he later talked to that very very famous tape that everybody's heard a hundred times. So it, it's not as if it just bubbled up out of 
just a pure, you know, naked partisanship. There, there was something underneath it that had that that had women thinking. It's shocking that despite all of these credible allegations and despite him admitting to it on tape, he was still elected president. And so, I th- so yeah. that was that. I think that's what produced the cultural moment beyond just mere partisanship. Right, right, right. But I think the ACLU pitching it to Amber Heard's publicist with the that hook, um, I, I think, and then talking about Betsy DeVos in the op-ed itself. I mean, again, like if you're the ACLU, I completely understand how this is your hook for you to push your advocacy. But again, like you're the ACLU and you're jumping on uh, one person's side of this like pretty difficult question. And I think that's what this trial has shown that like if you are Amber Heard and you have all of these accusations, then Johnny Depp, this is like a messy relationship period, has all of these accusations actually against Amber Heard, who has admitted to hitting him now in defense of her sister is what she says. Like this is a, a very this is a very complicated situation. I think that's what explains why people are so compelled by it um, because it seems as though this was going in both directions. And again, like I, I just think using Trump as a hook was cynical. I think pushing against the jumping on herd side to push against Title IX reform was cynical. And I do think it was interesting that um, the Washington Post kind of bought this from the ACLU, which in and of itself had kind of bought from herd this opportunity to push its uh, partisan, I would say partisan in the Trump era, the ACLU was sort it of always became going very partisan. Third. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. And so I just I find it all very cynical. Um, and this is all separate from the question of who's right or wrong. Um, but the the ACLU, which is an important question again, but the ACLU saying, you know, I'm going to put my thumb on the scale, or we're going to put our thumb on the scale um, for for Amber Heard here, and we're going to write these write this accusation as though it is true and that she's correct the implication of that is johnny depp depp is a a wife beater and they haven't gone through due process they're supposed to protect civil liberties um and and not make accusations like this on the public stage without due process so i just found the whole the emails to me just were very cynical this this was definitely a landmark kind of moment in in their journey from civil liberties organization into a more partisan kind of resistance-based organization that was happening in in the Trump area and, and was coinciding with not just the you know this these pledges of multi-million dollars here but but tens of millions coming in from from Democrats from, who were mm-hmm. you know who were furious and frightened at having Trump in the White House and wanted to wanted to fund some organization that was going to protect what liberties uh, remained and then because they didn't trust the Democratic Party necessarily to do it and so but then the, it right it became then vested in that project so right but no yeah that's i think that's a, a totally fair um description of what happened and actually in the emails one of the aclu staffers inadvertently refers to the washington post op-ed as an ad um and then takes it back and, mm-hmm. and says the the article not the ad but this is yeah there's there's definitely a huge fundraising push and it does show ryan this was the first thing you said how easy it is to get caught up in fundraising um over principle and uh, i do think the aclu has sadly fallen prey to to that right. well thank you emily and everybody stick around we'll have more rising right after this
Well, a friend of the show, Philip Wegman, wrote a fascinating report in Real Clear Politics this week about a Swiss billionaire who's had seemingly an outsized influence on American politics over the last couple of decades. Um, Americans for Public Trust filed a lawsuit in district court in Washington, D.C., alleging the FEC has been slow to act on a May 2021 complaint against this Swiss billionaire whose name is Hans-Jörg Wies. The watchdog group cited various media interviews and a government filing that indicated Wies is not a U.S. citizen, which would make donating to political candidates or political action committees illegal, as Philip reported in Real Clear Politics. Even the sister of Wies wrote in her book that he is not a United States citizen, which is, of course, an important point in this in all of this. Americans for Public Trust is suing the FEC for failing to investigate foreign money in our elections. Caitlin Sutherland, who is executive director of Americans for Public Trust, said in a statement to The Hill, Caitlin joins us now. Thank you so much, Caitlin, for coming on the show. Well, thank you for having me. This is such an interesting case study because it actually seems that when we shifted to uh, away from political donations directly um, and into funding these PACs, what he might have done, it seems as though it's possibly legal. He may have violated some things, but it seems like maybe our law has a gap in it. Um, What is your, what are you looking at as you've been researching this case as to what the legality of these these millions and millions of dollars that have poured into our politics in America from, from Weiss looks like? So as a foreign national, he is prohibited from giving directly, but also giving indirectly. And what Mm. we see here is that through his nonprofits, he has been able to funnel over $200 million to further nonprofits that support liberal and left-wing causes. Um, So yes, not only is he prohibited from giving a candidate money directly, uh, but this pattern that we have identified here is something that he is indirectly doing that is also prohibited by federal law. And so there's a distinction, right, between giving directly to candidates or giving indirectly to candidates uh, and kind of just broadly supporting political causes. And it, what, what I thought of was, so it was somewhat controversial at the time, but and you might remember in 2008, 2009, the giant coalition that was organized to push through Obamacare was funded by this guy from the Caribbean, I think the Bahamas, who basically had uh, made a fortune through duty-free shops and decided he wanted to give all of his money away within like 10 years uh, unusual for a, a big donor, you know, they usually kind of give out little crumbs and, and their, the size of their wealth grows as they're giving money away. He just w- wanted to give it all away, gave something like $150 million to what, uh, Health Care Action Now that then, you know, used it to uh, lo- basically lobby and pressure Congress to, you know, do the strongest Obamacare possible. There was some question about the, whether that was legal because he, he was a foreigner, but it seemed that people came down on the side of that's okay because he wasn't giving money to candidates. So is there evidence that this Swiss billionaire uh, is giving money to candidates or is he funding kind of liberal causes? So that's a great question because he's actually done both. On the federal level, up until 2003, he actually contributed uh, $70,000 to federal candidates, including current Senator Dick Durbin. He's also contributed right. around, which is, and that's illegal, right? Like that's just straight up right. can't do that. Uh, correct, right. um, because of statute of limitations, um, you know, there is nothing that can be done. But yes, a foreign national cannot donate directly 
uh, to U.S. senators. He also gave $70,000 on the state level. Um, it also appears to us that that is illegal. Uh, what we have now is this indirect uh, pattern of passing money from one nonprofit to another. Um, certainly, you can make the argument that when you are giving money to support issue advocacy campaigns or even voter education campaigns, there's nothing illegal about it. However, what we've identified here is that he has given over the years over $135 million to the 1630 fund. Just last cycle, the 1630 fund gave $60 million to super PACs that supported Joe Biden. So until mm -hmm. that takes action and investigates that daisy chain of pattern between the money flow, we will not know the full extent of his involvement in our U.S. politics. And so that's what you guys are looking at. And in this filing is that if he's giving, if he's funneling his donations through a, a another organization that's giving to candidates, what is the law when it comes to that? So like, in other words, what is your complaint zeroing in on legally that would be problematic? Yeah. And is it is it against the law to give the super PACs? I, I, I genuinely Or to know. give to a, yeah. a group that then has a super PAC, yeah. yeah. Yes, it, as a foreign national, actually just last month, the FEC handed out one of the largest fines in FEC history to a Canadian billionaire uh, that contributed money to a super PAC. Uh, I believe the fine was almost a million dollars. So a foreign national can absolutely not contribute to a super PAC. A foreign national, what he has done here is contributing to a group. And that group has then, you know, financed super PACs that supported Joe Biden, U.S. Senate candidates, ballot initiatives, everything across the board. Um, that is what we're seeing as indirect participation, and it would also be illegal. And that's why we've asked the FEC to investigate. And they're, so, they're public. Oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, so the, the law would prohibit him from donating to an organization that then don donates to super PACs. Um, the, the law prohibits donating money to an organization for that money to then go into a super PAC. Okay, um, so intent. The question would be intent. The intent. So, right, and so they, they publicly say that they bar nonprofits that they fund from then you know doing illegal things with that money. <laughs> Are those nonprofits getting enough money from elsewhere that they'd be able to say, that's the money that went to elections and our money went to voter education, normal things, or or no, is there is there so is the math just such that some of his money must have gone to these super PACs? Well, it's certainly looking like that. We're limited on what is publicly available, and that's why we've asked the FEC to take a look. Um, however, you know, Mr. Beast is contributing, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars um, to these nonprofits. And, you know, when they're then putting that money, 1630 fund, over, you know, $400 million support liberal and left-wing causes, and you take a look at who their top donors are, you know, Mr. Vist is one of those top donors. Um, so yeah. does it matter? That is for the FEC to decide, because to us, it certainly looks like it doesn't. And let me, yeah, and yeah. Well, I was going to say, that's where you get to the question of whether there's a gap. Like, if you can just construct shadow organizations that then donate to super PACs, the law is essentially meaningless. I mean, it is very important that foreign money does not end up in our elections indirectly or directly. So if they have designed this scheme to make uh, somehow legal for him to benefit a group whose ultimate goal is to support liberal and left-wing causes, you know, that is, you know, not the way that our law is supposed to work. 
Uh, what right. we have here is we think a very strong, compelling case uh, that Mr. Vies is in violation of supporting U.S. elections indirectly. And because 2022 is gearing up to be a competitive midterm, we hope that the FEC investigates because we will not know how much foreign money is going to influence causes as we lead into the midterms. And I, I, I do want to get your response to what seems to me to be a pretty ironic situation, which is, of course, for years, the right has been doing everything it can to defund the FEC. Like McConnell has been quite clear <laughs> and deliberate uh, that this is his goal. Uh, to make sure it doesn't have a quorum, to make sure it doesn't have funding, so that it can't actually do the job that it's supposed to do, because he he basically believes that the FEC is unconstitutional and, and you know inhibits free speech and, and on and on. We know McConnell's whole line on this. Uh, so there's some irony and there's kind of you know some richness in in then saying it's un, it's unfair that the FEC is not investigating and following through on enforcement of this particular case where it seems like you guys have laid out some decent data points that ought to be investigated. Unfortunately, the FEC has been destroyed. Well, I can't speak to McConnell's uh, views on this, but what I can speak to is that the FEC themselves voted unanimously to prioritize cases of foreign influence mm -hmm. in elections. That is in their own words, that they voted to prioritize these cases. We have waited a year while this over a year that is long enough for them to investigate and because they in their own words said that they would prioritize it and we strongly believe that coming into a midterm and everything that mr Vies has done before it must be investigated we hope that they prioritize this case and that's why we're filing the lawsuit sounds like we should fully staff and fund the fec i'm gl <laughs> glad we all glad we all agree with that let's shift to the irs now <laughs> yes and fund, fund the irs too Caitlin, thank you so much. Caitlin Sutherland from Americans for Public Trust. We appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. We'll be back with more Rising after this. So an article in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences has reignited uh, the lab leak debate. So J Jeffrey Sachs, who was the chair of a, com a commission at Columbia University tasked with investigating the origins of the pandemic, has this new article. My colleague Sharon Lerner over at The Intercept has a good piece on it yesterday that I would encourage everybody to read. But she, she writes that writing in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, Sachs and his co-author, Neil Harrison, said that federal agencies and universities possess evidence that has not been adequately reviewed including virus databases, biological samples, viral sequences, email communications, and laboratory notebooks. Sachs and Harrison also highlighted a tantalizing scientific detail that may be an indication that SARS-CoV-2, the coronavirus that causes COVID-19, originated in a laboratory. A sequence of eight amino acids on a critical part of the virus's spike protein that is identical to an amino acid sequence found in cells that line human airwaves. And so Emily, uh, Sharon uh, interviewed a number of different uh, virologists for this, for this article that, that follows Jeffrey Sachs's piece and asked, you know, could this, could this be a coincidence? You know, this, this, this precise match uh, between these uh, amino acid proteins. And the, re the answers that she got were basically like, I suppose, it's theoretically possible that it could be a coincidence, but the number of coincidences that are starting to have to stack up for all of these things to have to be coincidences is getting 
very hard to believe. So what's what's your what's your read on this uh, latest from from Sachs in this? This was not a peer-reviewed article. This was in the opinion section, but the fact that it's now in the in these ma- major kind of flagship scientific uh, magazines is, I think, suggesting that even that even the scientific community at at the very top is saying no, this is a very live debate. Right. And Sharon, I think, got a preview of what the peer mm-hmm. review process might produce by doing journalism and right. asking for reviewing peers, what the... reviewing it with peers. Right. <laughs> yes. She she consulted the peers. Um, and it's to your point about coincidences that would have to stack up. Well, the other the, the other major coincidence. So we're talking about coincidences in the amino acid spike protein. We're also talking about coincidences in the fact that this virus emerges exactly where a lab is doing this mm-hmm. kind of research. So that's two right there that we're getting into like incredible uh, unprecedented coincidence territory. Um, but also when we say, when Sachs says not adequately reviewed, that's an incredible statement. To me, those two words are huge because it's this adequately reviewed question. They, they still haven't been adequately reviewed. We're more than two years into this. Could they have been, could this evidence have emerged and have been more adequately reviewed two years ago? Um, I think the answer to that is unquestionably yes. Um, and it, our policy, the world's policy, it's not just the United States policy, but the world's policy towards China, I think should have been very different with this information a long time ago. Um, and yet here we are two plus years that, you know, the, that for foreign policy position has still yet to shift to really say like the evidence is is very serious that this came from the lab and I, I think things would have been very very different um, for the better um, towards a more just sort of global uh, positioning if this was not such an untouchable question right. in the media and in the scientific community for a long time. If you look back at that email Francis Collins sent uh, Fauci saying is there anything we can do to push back on this. Mm-hmm. It's incredible. It makes it makes it look so uh, just so repulsive. Yeah. And, and Fauci writes back, don't worry, this is just a shiny object. You know, it'll 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 go away. And, and Sachs has been a really impressive figure in this in this journey. He was n- named to chair this c- commission of uh, there are 12 of the kind of leading virologists and l- deep into the process, you know, he discovered that I think five of them had these intense conflicts of interest related to the, this, this particular lab and this particular research. And he just stepped back and said, this, this, is, not how, this is not how this is done. You, this, and, and, dis, and disbanded and, and blew the whistle on the, the conflicted kind of in, investigation into this and now is, has put forward this paper, which draws on a lot of research and work that's been done by other scientists before him. And he, and he very much zeroes in on this, this DARPA a grant proposal that was jointly, as you mentioned, it was jointly produced by the, the Ralph Barrick, the, the the researcher in, in UNC, who's kind of a a the one of the the foremost kind of gain of function uh, researchers in the world, and and the Wuhan lab. And the big question has always been: Was any of the research described in this grant proposal done before or after the grant proposal? Because we know that DARPA in the end, rejected the grant proposal. And so EcoHealth Alliance, which, which made this proposal, has said, well, we didn't actually get the money. And so, yes, it looks like uh, we have a recipe here for the, for the pandemic you know, that, that precisely matches it. But we didn't actually do that work because we didn't get funded for it. 
Sharon and others have interviewed a lot of scientists who say, well, it's pretty standard fair that you would do some of this work uh, ahead of time. And so Sachs is pointing to this and saying, not, not only is it standard fair that you would do some of this work ahead of time, but here is precisely why you would do that work and how it would match up and how that work could then have led to an accident that uh, ended up producing the pandemic. And what we also have to know is that there's outside funding for this lab. It's not just the NIH. It's not just EcoHealth Alliance that is funding this lab in Wuhan. We, we do know, according to the State Department, that there's a collaboration with the People's Liberation Army there. We don't know how much funding the PLA gives to this lab, but we know that if they wanted to do research, they're not just sitting around in Wuhan waiting for uh, NIH funding. So, so we know that they had the, the recipe we know, because it shows up in this DARPA grant. And then the question is, did they do some of that work? Sachs is saying it, it looks like they did. Right. And that's a huge element here, because, again, I was talking earlier about the culpability of China, but there also clearly um, is a potential that there was there's culpability on the behalf of the United States that was mm -hmm. funding and, and not with ad adequate oversight this research. And that's yeah. a huge, huge question, too, um, that we absolutely are, are behind on answering because, and we've talked about this before, Ryan, at any given moment, this can happen again. Right? Like, if we don't know what's happening at any given moment, this can emerge from some laboratory in some corner of the world that's getting United States funding and is not adequately um, providing oversight. And uh, who knows? But this is why uh, what Sachs is saying is so important, and it should have happened years ago. Right, and that's a key point. We we are still funding this type of research, like as as we speak, and so right. there are huge questions about whether this research should be conducted at all. But then, if you're going to say, okay, well, we're going to continue to fund this research, the questions are. Under what conditions and where are you going to do it? You know, there's, I think right. there's, a, there's a lab in, in Colorado that does some, uh, some extremely dangerous research. I'd rather they not do it at all, but they're doing it somewhere way out in the mountains uh, so that you know, if they do have an accident, they can, they can, they can isolate it ahead of time. That's the theory, at least. I still think it's too dangerous, but at least that's a theory. And, it's, it's, and it, you know, they take all of the, like, the, the most... Uh, sophisticated protections that they can, or they claim they do. The Wuhan lab didn't even claim to do that. The Wuhan lab is a lower level lab. It's, it's the kind of place where people are, yeah, they're, they're, they're supposed to be wearing masks, but they're not always wearing masks. And it's ba if you look at pictures of it, it basically looks like it's in a strip mall. Uh, and yeah. it's in a city of some 20 plus million people. And so if it gets out, it's not as if you ha then have a chance. Okay, let's, let's track everybody and make sure that you know, nobody leaves this, this like remote mountainous area. It's like, oh no, they're, they're already down uh, grocery shopping at the seafood market. It, so it's, it's, it's too late for that. So these are the questions that we should be asking because we don't want, you know, 10 years from now to be looking back at COVID as like the gentle pandemic. Like, mm. oh, oh, wasn't that, that, wasn't that nice that there was only a, you know, 0.5% case fatality rate with that and most, and it, and it didn't affect children. Uh, Right. And it's that strikes me as a really important point, because um, every time that we don't have something like this emerging while we're doing this research is a blessing. Like we are we are lucky every time that this doesn't happen because we know that there is an adequate oversight. And we know that because of exactly the emerging evidence that we keep seeing, which even at best 
we have learned that this research was being done in that lab with with without the adequate security measures. So whether or not it was COVID, we know that what was happening right. in that lab was not up to standards. And so we're not entitled to pandemic free years. Um, we're not entitled when we are at this high level of technological and medical experimentation that we do everywhere in so many different ways. We are not entitled to any year without uh, a pandemic. It, it is a, a very yeah. fine line uh, between safety and and, no, and and a lack of safety. And these questions um, should have been answered immediately, but they should be answered immediately now. But there's so many powerful people with reputations at stake that will continue trying to obscure the truth. Um, and I don't know that it'll ever be accepted. Right, no. Anyway, we'll have more rising right after this. The New York Times is reporting that back in May, President Biden secretly signed an order authorizing the military to redeploy special forces to Somalia. This is in efforts to target al-Shabaab leaders in the country. The move reverses former President Trump's decision to withdraw there. And this comes as the country's new president, Hassan Mohammed, welcomed Biden's decision to send troops in order to deal with the terrorism group. But some question that the U.S. government is pulling the strings for their own gain. The former president of Somalia had rejected a U.S. oil and gas deal back in February to protect the country's resources. Some are now pointing to the new president as an arm of the U.S. that will enable the transfer of these resources. Political anthropologist at UC Irvine and contributing editor to Africa is a Country, Samar Musa al-Balushi, joins us to discuss. Welcome to the show. Hi, it's good to be with you. So I think what most people are going to want to help you to help us understand is what motivated the withdrawal and what now is the you know reason that's been given for why we're getting back involved. Great. So I think the first place that it's important to start is the question of how we got here, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and to recall that the U.S. never formally declared war on Somalia. Um, it was under the Bush administration that the U.S. began to develop concerns about the situation on the ground, and it was at that time that the U.S. backed an Ethiopian-led military operation invasion of the country that toppled uh, the government. So it's been over 15 years now that the U.S. has been involved and yet never formally declared war. As far as the recent developments are concerned, um, the reason Trump uh, withdrew was ostensibly to uh, uh, downplay the U.S. involvement in Somalia. And I think it's important to recall here that uh, the, the decision to withdraw was actually more of a symbolic one, a mm. symbolic gesture mm. rather than anything else, because the troops were effectively sent to neighboring countries like Ethiopia and Kenya. And from there, they have continued to commute to work, as the military likes to call it. They have been fl flying in regularly into Somalia to conduct the very trainings that the Biden administration now says it's going to continue. So I think we have to ask ourselves how different um, of a policy is this at the end of the day. We also have to ask ourselves how and why it is that the U.S. is so reliant on African troops that it says that it's there to train, right? So the U.S. never explicitly wanted to deploy U.S. troops to the front lines. That has been a very clear uh, policy of consistently of all administrations. And instead, it is putting African troops on the front lines, knowing that Americans are likely not to care if those troops die or if they uh, actually engage in war crimes themselves. Hmm. 
So why then, if the posture of the conflict is still the same, would Biden choose to get rid of, you know, not take advantage of the plausible deniability of the commuting setup and go ahead and fully uh, put troops back into the country? So the reason is precisely because the U.S. troops are not going to be the ones on the front lines, mm. right? So they don't need to worry about uh, accountability for uh, crimes that the U.S. troops themselves might commit. And effectively, this is why, as I was saying, there's not that much difference whether they're commuting in or whether they're permanently based there, because at the end of the day, it's not U.S. troops that are standing on the front lines. So these troops that are going to be uh, on the front lines, who are these guys? Are they are we once again arming moderates, quote unquote, who will ultimately then use our weapons and our training against us in some future fashion? I think that's an excellent question. I think Americans have a desire to think of wars and of cons as consisting of good guys and bad guys, right? And the reality on the ground is simply not that uh, not that simple. So the people that we have been training have included African Union peacekeeping forces, and they've included Somali security forces. Now we've been engaged in those trainings for 15 years, and at a certain point, you have to ask yourself, how and why has it taken 15 years? to do these trainings and how and why are we still in the same place that we were 15 years ago in the sense that there is no peace and stability, right? Now, uh, when you look more closely at what has transpired, um, many of the troops have defected. Many of the troops sell their arms on the black market because sometimes they simply don't get paid. And many of those troops develop loyalties with other entities that makes it a far more gray area situation than we would like to believe, you know, from here in the United States. Right. I, and I, you're absolutely right. And it's, it's not even it's by Americans, you know, thinking, well, it's a it's a good versus evil situation. It's the government. It's the experts, the so-called experts uh, responsible for these policies who act that way, even though time and time again, we see it's, it's not the case. And Biden, you know, chart, did chart a very different course in Afghanistan. But now we have this involvement in Ukraine. We have this involvement uh, elsewhere. And it, it's it's it, is there a sense that we're you know, we're, we use these proxy battles that we, we have other people and we're behind them and we're moving them and, and motivating them. But we're we're having them fight our battles for us because there is no appetite among the American people for actual direct confrontation involving American forces. That's absolutely right. We've been relying on proxies. And what the U.S. government, again, over consistent administrations has done is enact laws and procedures that make it possible for us to rely on proxies. Right. So it makes it possible for us to direct funds. It makes it possible for us to go and do the trainings. And uh, most Americans have no idea that 22,000 African peacekeeping troops have been on the ground for the last 15 years. That's a lot of troops. And that's a number that simply that would generate interest if it were American troops, right? But because they're African, it simply doesn't. It's it's incredibly rare that we even hear about the role that they're that they're playing. It's rare that we hear about their own deaths. It's impossible to get figures about their deaths. And that's another element that's super important here, and that is how hard it is for journalists to actually enter into Somalia to do the coverage, to get us the information that we need for Americans, right, to be making decisions when we go to the polls about this war that was never declared uh, on a country that, you know, has been uh, suffering now for 15 years.
Can you Dr. tell us why? Sorry, uh, no, why are we why are we there in Somalia fighting Al Shabaab? I mean, what makes Somalia different from, let's say, Nigeria, where there's Boko Haram? Uh, you know, why are we not fighting? I guess every terrorist organization all throughout the entire continent of Africa is it because of the geo the the location of Somalia and how it feeds into the Red Sea towards that Suez Canal? Is is that is it just because of we are trying to protect our ships? So the geopolitical location is extremely, extremely important. And uh, as you mentioned, it's located on the Red Sea, on the Indian Ocean. And that is a hugely, hugely important uh, location as far as global trade is concerned. Now, uh, north of Somalia in Djibouti, that's where the U.S. military has its largest uh, presence, right? And there the U.S. has been competing with all kinds of other entities that have similarly been setting up a military presence. That includes China, that includes the European Union, that includes Japan, uh, and the Gulf states, I should mention, have also become increasingly involved in the region. Now, every single one of these governments has interests in resources. They have interest in oil. That includes the United States. And so that gives you the kind of broader picture of the competition for resources, competition for access to uh, um, regionally important ports for global trade. That's what it comes down to. Money. That's what it comes down to. What do you see, you know, what is what is the next step in this in in this escalation, if it is an escalation? So the part that we haven't touched on is actually the other element of the announcement from the Biden administration this week. And that is the decision to maintain Trump's flexible approach to to drone warfare. Now, when Biden came into office, he announced that he would be doing a review of the drone policy. And the reason he needed to do this review is because during Trump's time in office, he enacted um, a designation of uh, calling Somalia a quote unquote area of active hostilities, knowing right that we never declared war on the country. And so it had to come up with a special designation in order to legitimate giving the U.S. military discretionary discretionary authority in order to launch drone strikes without White House permission. Now, during Trump's time in office, this meant that drone strikes skyrocketed and uh, the number of people who were killed just jumped to between 900,000 people. Um, and that's a conservative estimate. So when Biden came in, he said, maybe we need to rethink this policy. Clearly, people are raising concerns about the number of people killed and about the number of drone strikes themselves. And so we were led to believe that this was part of Biden's um, push towards ending endless war and that it might have a more ethical approach to its foreign policy. And yet what was announced on Monday as well is that, in fact, it's going to maintain this flexible approach to drone, drone policy, which means that the U.S. military will not have to consult the White House. It will simply go through the State Department uh, you know, a figure on the ground, but will not have to consult the White House before it launches a drone strike. So this is a tremendously worrying development for Somalis in terms of the prospect for war from the air. Mm. So they, they reviewed the drone policy and said, A-OK, drone policy. Unbelievable. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, they would they would tell you differently, <laughs> but at the end of the day, that's... My goodness. Well, uh, Dr. Samar Musa Albalushi, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. And we'll have more rising in just a minute. All right, we're joined now by a Democratic representative from California and Deputy Whip of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, uh, Ro Khanna. Congressman Khanna, thanks for joining us. Ryan, it's always a pleasure. 
And so I, I wanted to talk about the, the elections this, this week and what they say about the Democratic Party because it gave me something of a whiplash because, you know, heading into these, heading into these elections, it felt like the chaos that Citizens United had unleashed back in 2010, it was finally starting to you know, bear real fruit. Like it, it felt like something this cycle, uh, when it comes to super PAC involvement, particularly in, in Democratic primaries, is it's just fundamentally and significantly different than, than before. Like after 2010, so you know, it took a long time for the system to start uh, evolving and adapting to you know, what was now possible for corporate power and for the super wealthy in elections. And you, know, you didn't really start to see this mass proliferation until now. And it, maybe DMFI, Democratic Majority for Israel, back in 2020, kind of a, a pioneer in, 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 in pumping millions of dollars into Democratic primaries. They spent, what, $2 million against Jamal Bowman trying to protect uh, Elliot Engel. Uh, but now they've been joined by others. You have uh, a couple of, you have several crypto PACs that have been spending just obscene amounts of money in these races. In one race in Oregon, a, a, a crypto-backed PAC spent uh, more than $10 million. It's not, it's not crypto-focused. They're focused on pandemic prevention, but they're funded by uh, crypt, crypto money. Uh, there's Web3, another super PAC that's spending huge amounts of money. APAC has finally formed. I don't know what took them so long. They've formed their own super PAC and are spending millions in these Democratic primaries and also in Republican primaries. And so therefore, they're doing most of their spending in Democratic primaries with Republican money. Uh, the pharmaceutical industry spent more than, you know, put more than a million dollars into a super PAC to protect Kurt Schrader out in Oregon. And so despite all of this money, this is where the whiplash came from. It was a huge night for progressives on Tuesday night. The voters kind of pushed through. They were massively outspent. Uh, the progressives were massively outspent, but still managed to win in most of the races. The, uh, the super PACs were able to bury a couple of candidates, two, two in particular, Nita Alam and Erica Smith in North Carolina. And so how, do you, how are you now thinking about the relationship between kind of the Democratic Party and this massive outside money? Because they're going to continue to evolve and adapt. It, there may have been some victories on Tuesday, uh, but they, they don't seem to have the kind of limits uh, on the resources available to them uh, that, that a lot of progressive candidates do. So what, what, what can be done about this? Or is this, is this just wildly out of control and this is the new normal? Well, it's, first of all, fundamentally wrong. And it's having a massive impact at the House primary level. Ryan, it used to be that these super PACs played at the presidential level, maybe at a Senate level, in a competitive race between a Republican and a Democrat. I think this is really the first cycle, uh, maybe against Nina Turner, the cycle before, where you've had these super PACs playing in primary elections, uh, in primary elections with no incumbent. And the mm -hmm. reason it's so devastating is that that's where the money makes the biggest impact. You know, when you're running for president, you can spend $500 million like Michael Bloomberg and still get a few percent in the polls because there's a ton of media exposure. You actually have to be a good candidate. Uh, but when you're running for the House of Representatives in a primary, the money really can make a big difference because candidates tend to be relatively unknown. They can be defined. You don't have national media interest. 
Uh, and so it's very dangerous. And I think all of us have to uh, say this money should not belong. There should be a stigma to this kind of money in Democratic primary races. I Look, I am supported uh, more than most Democrats, some of the uh, cryptocurrencies with sensible regulations. And I have friends there and I have had conversations with some of them saying uh, this is uh, really wrong and it's actually going to backfire, that it's not going to hurt the cause uh, that you're that you're trying to advance. And what do you make of some of their or the loss in Oregon in particular? The They spent $10 million, an extraordinary amount, like that just an unprecedented practically amount of money uh, on an obscure candidate in this Oregon Oregon race. And then the House Majority PAC, uh, which is, you know, the super PAC that run by House Democrats, put a, put another million dollars in, into this particular candidate, the same candidate backed by the, the crypto PAC. And it had a lot of people wondering, well, what on earth is going on here? Was there some kind of what, what's the, what's the deal? Because it didn't it didn't make sense, you know, in a in a in, in a year where Democrats are trying to salvage a slim majority to spend a million dollars in a blue seat in an open primary with no incumbent only made sense if there was some kind of arrangement with those with those crypto funders. And so how did how did and how, so how are people in the House responding to this when they're when they're seeing this kind of money being being spent? Is it changing the behavior of members of Congress, is it changing the way that people think about particular issues, whether it's crypto or something else, wondering if, they're, if there's going to be a super PAC that changes their life? Sure. I mean, I think that's the uh, hope for a lot of these big spenders, that they're going to create a, uh, an impact on House members thinking twice uh, before uh, voting uh, against them. And that, and that uh, just fuels the sense of, uh, of, of corruption in Congress, that uh, you have big money interests uh, influencing whether someone's going to sign on for Medicare for all, whether someone is going to sign on uh, for uh, not having bloated defense budgets, whether someone's going to sign on to take on the oil and gas industry, whether someone's going to sign on to say we need sensible regulations on cryptocurrency. You can't have Terra uh, not be backed by reserves and go down to zero uh, and that be permissible. Uh, it obviously people uh, may think uh, may think twice, and a lot of members of Congress don't have the advantage I do, which is I represent uh, Silicon Valley, and so there are a lot of individuals there uh, where I can raise individual contributions and uh, can't, don't get intimidated by these super PACs. If you're from a district that doesn't have a lot of wealthy individuals, it becomes much harder uh, to stand up to uh, these corporate interests. So what I think is required is a clear denunciation of this, uh, and a sense, I, I told some of the folks who I know, I said, first of all, $10 million, there's diminishing marginal returns to a, a house race. And secondly, you're never going to win with someone, I don't care how much money you spend, if the other person is in the community, knocked on doors and has a record. So some of that, I think, was naivete. Uh, but what I'd love to see the speaker, the Senate majority leader, the president, all members of Congress come out and say is that super PAC money in a Democratic primary is wrong that we need to, that there is a stigma to doing that uh, and then to condemn it as soon as it happens so that that money actually leads to a backlash uh, like I think it did in Bloomberg's race at a presidential mm -hmm. level. That's not happening right now at the at the primary level. Yeah, Ber Bernie Sanders recently said that that the Democratic Party should have a policy, you know, no no super PAC money in in primaries. 
and you're, you seem like you're supporting something similar. How would how would that how would that how would you enforce that? I know the stigma is a significant part of it, but are there some mechanisms? The, the party party has some soft power, and maybe it has some real power that it could uh, you know could revoke access to different tools that you need to to run or what. Uh, you know what? What could be done? Like ob- obviously, the Supreme Court is just allowing all of this stuff. But what can Democrats, as a party, in their own primaries, do to tr- to try to enforce some type of rules or at least norms around this? Well, you could start by having the leadership speak out, right? From the DNC chair to the Speaker of the House, the Senate Majority Leader, condemning the candidate uh, who's doing this. Now, the candidates will say, "I don't know." I but the candidate then should be out explicitly saying, I don't want the super PAC to spend a dime uh, for me uh, and be very, very vocal about it. And for the uh, members of Congress uh, leadership to, to be vocal about it, that would make news in the district. Uh, and I think it would, would backfire. I mean, beyond that, uh, I, I think it could cost uh, potential endorsements. I mean, it could, uh, the DNC may have mechanisms uh, to, uh, make it very unpleasant for a candidate uh, who's seeking uh, that kind of support. And I think if a candidate themselves starts to condemn that super PAC spending and you know, the speaker, the Senate majority leader, the DNC leader, then they may realize that that's not uh, actually helping the candidate. It's hurting the candidate and and stop. Uh, but, you know, we definitely need norms uh, around this. Uh, and I say this as someone, look, if if I ever were to run in, 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 in some primary in Silicon Valley, it'd be very easy for me to go to umpteen number of billionaires and say, start a super PAC. I, mm-hmm. I wouldn't do it because I don't believe in it. Uh, but, you know, this is just wrong. So I think you should have people from wealthy districts, from not wealthy districts, coming out and saying clearly, uh, no super PACs in Democratic primaries. By the way, I don't believe that we should uh, limit super PACs in Democratic versus Republican races because I'm not for unilateral disarmament. I mean, if you got, you know, Donald Trump or other people running and, uh, you know, or in the Pennsylvania race of Fetterman, if Dr. Oz has a super PAC, I have no problem with a super PAC going to Fetterman to level the playing field. My problem is in the Democratic primaries. It was, it was striking to watch these, this, all of this crypto money coming into these primaries at the same time that you're seeing this massive crypto collapse. You, you and I, I kind of disagree on this. I've always, I've kind of been a, a skeptic of, of crypto the whole time. It just seem, seems to me like a, like a pyramid scheme. And it, the last couple of weeks seemed to me to be, well, that's, this is what happens when, you know, you do the Super Bowl ad in January, you get as many people in as you can at the last minute. And then by now it's fading. What, what, what am I getting wrong about that? It's, it, and, and, and how are Democrats responding in Congress? Like it, it feels like this, to me, that this is a moment of like, okay, the people that were saying that this is not real, that this is collapsing, this is going to collapse, now it's collapsed. Uh, what's, what, why, why is that wrong? So there's definitely a case for stronger regulation. I mean, Terra uh, did collapse. It went to really zero, and it was a stable coin that wasn't backed by any dollars. It was backed by an algorithm to Luna, and there should be requirements that you have to have a stable coin, which is pegged to the dollar, actually have dollar reserves. It's similar to the banking requirements we had after 2008, that you need capital reserves. But in terms of blockchain itself and cryptocurrency, there are genuine use cases. Uh, those use cases are to make it easier to have remittances overseas, to be able to move money uh, without 
uh, incurring fees to be able to move money faster, uh, ultimately uh, to be able to share uh, things and execute contracts in ways that don't require third party verification. So look, they all of tech has fallen 50%. Um, I guess is cryptocurrency has fallen 70%. And that's because they're sort of early stage technology companies. And it, my guess is that the top 10 companies and one of the reasons you have disproportionate young folks and African-American Latino folks investing in it is because they're shut out of the early venture capital and other types of investment in Silicon Valley. What we need to do is figure out how do we give them access to investing early in technology, because that will ultimately be a wealth generation without being scammed like Terra was. And it, it's a complicated issue that I think requires more sensible regulation. And, and last, I, I wanted to get your take on the, the hot issue in the Democratic caucus now. Do you think that Sean Patrick Maloney should be able to remain as DCCC chair if he's, if he's leaving a, a, his district to challenge another Democratic incumbent in, in Mondaire Jones? No. No, nor do I think he should. I, I don't understand why he wouldn't run him. I, look, I, I haven't looked at detail. But I saw just on Twitter that it, the other district is plus five Biden. So, so I don't understand why he wouldn't run there. Mondaire Jones is an exceptional uh, member of Congress. Jamal Bowman is an exceptional member of Congress. I think it would be devastating as a signal in the modern Democratic Party if the outcome of this is that the two of them are running against each other. Uh, and I, my view is that everyone from President Biden to Senator Schumer to Speaker Pelosi needs to make sure that that doesn't happen. I mean, uh, that really is uh, outrageous if that is the, the consequence. So uh, I think that the first question we should ask is Amandir Jones and Jamal Bowman, where they're going to run and then figure out the rest. Right. And do you think the progressive world lines up behind Bowman, since that's mostly his his district? What's what's your guess? And where, where would you be if, if you were wow. forced to choose I, between? Be tougher. You know, it'd be easy for me if the race was uh, either of them on Maloney. I'd be uh, for either of them. Uh, but if they ran against each other, I'd, I'd probably stay neutral, to be honest. I, I have a tremendous amount of respect for Jamal Bowman. We've worked together. He's very progressive. I have a lot of respect for Mondaire Jones. He's on the Progressive Caucus Executive Board, and he's been championing on uh, voting rights and a number of key issues. But we should, that would be, let me just be blunt, that would be a colossal failure of leadership of the Democratic Party if that's the outcome. And, I, and it will be an awful reflection that a 21st century modern Democratic Party is making two rising stars, progressive African-Americans run against each other to protect uh, more senior members uh, and, and to protect power. It, 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 that, is a, that would be an outrage if that is the out, outcome, in my view. Yeah, it could be a joker moment for a lot of people. Uh, Congressman Khanna, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Appreciate it. And we'll have more Rising right after this. This week saw a string of progressive victories from coast to coast, as well as some fascinating uh, Republican primaries. Um, Emily, let's, let's start real quickly, if you don't mind, in Oregon, because there's some real kind of laughers out there uh, for people oh, yeah. to enjoy schadenfreude. So uh, we can start with Oregon's, uh, Oregon's 5th District. So this, is, this was Kurt Schrader who is a the former chairman of the Blue Dog Caucus, one of the most conservative Democrats in the House. He cast the deciding vote in the Energy and Commerce Committee to kill drug pricing reform legislation. Uh, he was then criticized for how much money he has taken from pharma throughout his career and saying, this looks like a, a payoff here. 
Uh, and he said, look, I'm not going to defund my campaign. That was his defense of taking all the pharma money, that if he did, it would defund his campaign. The, this super PAC called Center Forward, which is run by the pharmaceutical industry, came into his primary and spent more than a million dollars uh, to defend him. He had the, also had the endorsement of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Joe Biden, despite killing their drug price legislation and also uh, you know, saying that he wanted to kill Build Back Better and actively working inside the House caucus to split the infrastructure bill and Build Back Better so that, and this was what he said, that so that they could then focus on killing uh, Build Back Better. He, so he outspent his progressive primary challenger roughly 10 to 1 if you count the outside money. And all the votes are not counted yet, but with 50% reporting, because Oregon is male and, and in the county where Schrader is doing, uh, does the best, they screwed up their ballots, uh, and so they have to hand count them. But she's up by 21 points so far. And people in Oregon are saying that there's, it's really unlikely that he can uh, close, close, the, close this gap here. Uh, and I'll, I'll give you the Oregon 6th. If you remember, we talked about the, um, the, the, the crypto bros. There were not just one, but two crypto bros uh, running in this uh, sixth district. One was Carrick Flynn, who had more than $11 million spent on his behalf by a $10 million from a super PAC, a crypto super PAC, crypto-backed super PAC, and the other from House Majority PAC, Pelosi's PAC. And then this other guy, Cody Reynolds, that we talked about, spent something like $3 million of his own crypto money uh, running in the race. Uh, the guy that spent $3 million got 11% of the vote. The guy that spent $10 million got just 18% of the vote. And they both lost to Andrea Salinas, a progressive uh, member of the state legislature, who you know thumped them. Like, it wasn't even close, despite being massively outspent. So what is it about Oregon that, you know, because in most states, you spend that amount of money no matter what. Like, you can elect a Tilda Hunt in a Democratic primary if you have $10 million. <laughs> Uh, what, 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 did you, what did you make of Schrader uh, getting the boot and also these, these crypto folks falling short? Yeah, the Schrader race is a really interesting one, partially because of who seems to be beating him. Um, and I get the district is you know probably way more friendly to progressive messaging, but he's represented that district for a while. Um, and so to come in with that message and to have such a what appears to be such a decisive victory is really interesting. And I think um, if you look at Kathy Barnett in Pennsylvania, this is a race we previewed last week, someone who until the very last days had had virtually no outside support did not spend a lot of money I, it's true that she lost we still don't know who won the republican senate primary there um it's it's a razor thin margin and it's headed for a recount but kathy barnett came it within you know i, I think she was 25 percent and they're locked in somewhere around 31 percent um and, and so i think it's true this is part of a broader trend that uh money in politics is more powerful in certain situations and certain cases than in and others, and that's a pretty obvious statement. But I, I think the the power in the age of new media of money can way more easily be chipped away at by by good candidates who have support that's not just financial, but who are actually able to like either do really good grassroots work or uh, really good sort of new media work. Maybe a combination of both. I mean, AOC is probably a good example mm -hmm. from that from a pure political standpoint. But I think this is is actually these are good case studies and that broader trend. And as the current count stands, you've got uh, good old Dr. Oz uh, at a little over a thousand 
uh, votes ahead of Dave McCormick, who was Dina Powell. You know, Dina Powell was a Goldman Sachs uh, executive who worked in Trump's White House. Uh, McCormick is uh, Dina Powell's husband. Uh, that, that wasn't enough to get Trump's endorsement, and Trump has actually attacked him pretty aggressively toward the end and really pulled out the stops for Dr. Oz. There was a, there was a moment where, when Barnett was surging, where I was wondering, is Trump going to do that thing where he, like, switches horses at the very end? <laughs> and it's like, ah, Oz is a loser, like, like he did with Mo Brooks, who actually is now surging, which is hilarious, and we can talk about that. Uh, so Oz looks, you know, he's 1,000 up. We'll see what happens with the, with the recount. Uh, all, uh, supporters of McCormick are now saying, make sure we count all the mail ballots, which is not something <laughs> they were saying in Pennsylvania in 2020. Uh, who do you think is the, you know, Trump says that Dr. Oz is the only one that can beat John Fetterman, who easily won the primary from the hospital. Uh, that doesn't seem right to me. Like my, I, as, a, as a kind of, as from Fetterman's perspective, I'd be more worried about a McCormick. Um, but mm-hmm. what's your what, what's your sense of what of how Republicans feel about this this recount? They are absolutely yeah. The, the Trump sort of uh, coalition here is absolutely convinced that Dr. Oz is the electable person, and that again, Kathy Barnett is wildly unelectable. Um, but both Oz and McCormick would be preferable to her, and Oz is a strong, strong preference because Trump sees him as like a very media friendly, um, and in some ways, kind of um, moderate, but just like for this moment, well tailored. But it's interesting because. One of Oz's vulnerabilities uh, is his financial relationship with China, his business relationship mm-hmm. with China. That's that's where I think two races that have been high profile, but for the wrong reasons. Like I'm fascinated to see what happens between Oz and McCormick and Fetterman and what happens in, in a similar way between J.D. Vance and Tim Ryan, because you're pitting these two sort of ideologically uh, similar but opposed strains of populism on the left and the right um, against each other. And we'll see that from Oz and McCormick. McCormick either way, but they're going to have a harder time, I think, making that pitch given their backgrounds um, than somebody like Fetterman would. Um, and I think J.D. Vance and Tim Ryan, you're testing really similar things. And those are my two favorite races because I'm going to be really curious to see how those messages are developed to compete against each other, um, how a J.D. Vance develops his message to compete against a Tim Ryan and how a Tim Ryan develops his message to compete against a J.D. Vance. Does it make Tim Ryan seem more like a conservative populist? I don't know. The last thing I'll say is that I, I really think Fetterman is more vulnerable than um, a lot of people realize. Uh, and I would say that particularly because of uh, the energy issue. Um, and in a state like Pennsylvania, that's absolutely huge. And if you're going to the polls in Pennsylvania with super high gas prices in the fall um, and with somebody who's more on the like environmentalist side of that question, you're going to, I think, be very easily persuaded um, that your, finan- your immediate financial interests at the pump um, are at stake in that question. Although he's a savvy politician, and in 2020 he, he was warning Biden, "Don't go all in on a fracking ban." He's he's and the left actually that's one of their biggest frustrations with him, uh, yes, is that he's been uh, reluctant to be critical of fracking. I think for the exact reasons uh, that you're that you're talking about. Um, do you want to talk? You want to talk next week's primaries now, or do you do you, have, do you want to talk Mastriano? Because that was a kind of fascinating win too in the Republican gubernatorial primary. 
Yeah, it's interesting because, again, the Republican establishment, there are certain races that they freak out about because they think somebody is unelectable in the general. And even if they're a better candidate, this happens on both parties every Mm -hmm. single cycle. But it's been sort of magnified in the Trump era, Um, although you could go back to like Christine O'Donnell um, and and say that this has been magnified in in other parts Mm -hmm. of uh, history. You could certainly go further back than that, actually, to Reagan even. Uh, But this was a the, the Mastriano race is one that really had a lot of people in the Republican establishment very, very nervous. Um, Do you have thoughts on that from your perspective on the left? I mean, certainly the people who support Shapiro, who ran unopposed, he's attorney general, he ran unopposed in the primary uh, for governor, they they are ecstatic. Now, Lou Barletta was finished second, so I think they'd have been totally fine with him because he got annihilated uh, four years ago. But they are... Very excited, I think, to be running against Mastriano. This is a, you know, the, the stop the steal January 6th guy that they think that they can, uh, that he th- they think that he scares enough people in the suburbs around Philadelphia, basically, and around Pittsburgh that, that they're going to, that Shapiro's now going to cruise. In fact, Shapiro spent a significant amount of money in the primary boosting Mastriano, like running, yes. ad, running ads saying, this guy's too conservative, Trump loves him too much. He, he tried to overthrow the government. You don't want him as your nominee in the Republican Party, do you? I'm Josh Shapiro, and I hate Mastriano. And, his, his, and all the voters are like, all the Republican voters are like, okay, then yes, we love this guy. And Shapiro's exactly. like, excellent. Excellent. Well, and we talked to Nina Turner about how the opposite had happened in her race uh, with the the parties sort of flipped. And this happened, I think it happened in one of the Oregon races as well. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, it's a... It's crazy, um, but Mastriano is, if you flip exactly what the dynamic you just said, that who does he scare enough people in the suburbs and apply it to Fetterman, um, how is Fetterman going to talk about all of these issues uh, in a way that doesn't scare people off in the suburbs, but does it scare them off more than a Dr. Oz or a McCormick? These are just like, who are going to be tied to Mastriano. Um, that's where you can see that uh, both parties are like really going to have to refine those messages um, and to play to those voters in a state like Ohio and a state like Pennsylvania in particular. Um, and that's why I think these two states' races are so fascinating this cycle. Yeah, it'll, it, it will be interesting to see how it plays out because you know, Fetterman has a lot of the same kind of cultural politics that that haven't been working lately uh, for yes. Demo- for Democrats, but he scans differently culturally. And so, yes. if it's a culture question that you're voting on, you you might just go on your cultural impression of of who and what he is, and not even hear that he's saying kind of the same thing that some of the Democrats that you don't like are saying. And and if that if that moves 10% of the vote of these marginal folks, then that then that's enough. And so it raises the question of whether if Democrats can just kind of look different and act well, different and, and like show that they're talking to people and meeting them at their level, that even if you disagree with them on some of the questions, you're, you're still willing to then uh, hear them out. Right. And we've talked about this in the context of Randy Bryce before, but like 
Jason Kander has been making this pitch for years, uh, just saying that like you can actually be progressive down the line um, as somebody like Fetterman is. And if you can talk to people um, and meet them sort of where they are and just be a normal human being instead of like a progressive bot, um, you can win people with that sort of sense of authenticity. And I actually think um, Kander in, in himself is a good case study in that. And I think I could see that replicated mm-hmm. by Fetterman, but I still think in in this economy, that pitch is so much more difficult. It is yes. so much more difficult in a state like Pennsylvania. Um, and even if he's sort of been reluctant on fracking, totally right, because he knows, you know, that you have to be a little bit more savvy in those cases. Um, you know, having a, a green energy sort of reputation and history is going to be, it makes the, the job of Pennsylvania Republicans easier in the sort of Biden economy. Right. Um, and that's why, I mean, again, this is just a really, really interesting race. It's shaping up to be a really interesting race. Right. It might, right. The environment might be so bad that he's just swamped by the partisan lean against Democrats. Right. There's nothing you can do about it. Then really quickly, Summer Lee, of course, wins in, in Pittsburgh, despite $3 million of uh, APAC and DMFI spending against her. Uh, there's a lot of momentum now going into Texas, where uh, there are three different progressives running in, in runoffs. The biggest one will, to watch will be Jessica Cisneros uh, versus Henry Cuellar. Uh, Cuellar being the last kind of uh, abortion rights opponent in the in the House, and also uh, the, had his house raided by the FBI as part of an investigation into corruption. Uh, his allies are accusing her of being a homewrecker uh, with a giant <laughs> billboard. Uh, it's getting awfully ugly uh, in that in that race, but you know we'll we'll see how that we'll see how that one goes. But uh, anyway, we have we have to leave it there. Uh, but don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. So you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while you're on the go, we all, we're also available anywhere you listen to podcasts. That's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, all those all those different places. So uh, check that check that out. Um, Emily, uh, enjoy the rest of your uh, work retreat. I'm sure it's going to be a wonderful time. I'm looking forward to being back in the studio next week because uh, it's the most fun way to do this, Ryan. <laughs> yes, no, no doubt. Yeah. Looking forward to having you back here. See you then. See ya.